Well, happy 4th of July to everyone. I hope you will enjoy your celebrations later this afternoon and the evening, whatever you're doing with your family and friends. You know, I had an interesting conversation with a member of our church here in the last couple of weeks about how it's so interesting to be studying the Gospel of Luke and be in these early chapters of Luke because it just always reminds us of Christmas. Well, I mean, there is a saying, Christmas in July, so here we are. But, uh, but then we went on as we were talking about it. It's like, you know, but it's really good and interesting to be in these chapters of Luke when it's not Christmas because when it is Christmas, it seems like everything in the passage is just all about Christmas. But there's so much more in the Gospel of Luke in these first two chapters to observe and to praise God for. And so this morning, we're actually going to be joining in with the angelic announcement and their gloria this morning. As I've mentioned before, there are four songs in the beginning of Luke, and we're on the third one today. The first one was Mary's Magnificat, the second was Zacharias's Benedictus, and today is the angelic gloria. So you can turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 2, verses 1 to 20, and we'll simply read it as we go through it and let the story unfold before us again, hopefully afresh. The key passage in our, our, or the key section in our passage today is so obvious. It's in Luke chapter 2, uh, verse 10 and 11, and then in verse 14, where it says, Good news of great joy for all people. For today in the city of David has been born for you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. In verse 14, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. You know, Christmas as a celebration in the church <clears throat> began only in the fourth century. Um, so that was after the doctrinal controversies that were so important to defend that Jesus Christ was truly God, fully God, truly man, fully man. And so Christmas became a celebration to reassert and this beautiful doctrine of who Jesus Christ really, truly is, and to focus our meditations. But you know, it's also interesting to think that, you know, the church for 300 years prior to that would have been retelling this glorious story many times over, even before Luke recorded it. And like our brothers and sisters of long ago, we find this familiar story very satisfying to our souls in and of itself as it's recorded in Scripture for us here in Luke Luke wants us this morning to refresh our souls in the gospel of Jesus Christ and, and worship our Savior, Jesus Christ the Lord. He's reannouncing to the world and to the church the glory of the incarnation of the Son of God. This eternal Son of God has become human. In verses 1 through 7, we will learn that God sovereignly directed the humble birth of this true King of peace, and we all long for the peace in this world. Well, here he is. And then in verses 8 to 20, we learn that heaven and earth not only rejoiced on that day when Jesus was born, but they've been rejoicing ever since, rejoicing even today, and will rejoice throughout all eternity for who our Lord is. You know, as we read through the introduction to the gospel according to Luke, it's been a long time in coming, really, that we get to this story. It seems to take so long. In verse, chapter 1, verses 1 to 25, there's the announcement of the, prepar the preparer for the Lord, John the Baptist, who would be coming. And then there's a shift over in verses 26 to 20, 38, the announcement to Mary about Jesus, the Son of God, who would be coming. And then the meeting of the two mothers in verses 39 to 56, and how they joyfully exalt in God our Savior. 
And then in verses 57 to 80, we have the birth of John and the joy over the fact that prophecy has been fulfilled. And we're just looking forward to, well, what is next? Well, here we are. The event has finally come. Our Savior has been born, and he is Christ the Lord. And so the passage simply begins, in those days. In those days, now in those days, better translation, now in those days, finally we are getting to where we're supposed to be. And we're understanding that God has sovereignly directed all the events leading up to the birth of Jesus Christ. So in verses 1 to 3, we have the historical setting put before us. Then we see in verses 4 and 5, Joseph and Mary on their travels. And finally, in verses 6 and 7, Mary gives birth to the Christ child. So let me look at verses 1 through 3. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And so here, immediately, now it comes about in these days. You know, there are many notable sections in Luke where he draws our attention to the importance of history. And sometimes we just skip over those sections because it doesn't seem to be that spiritual or that important. But as we're going to find as we go through and study the Gospel of Luke, history is extremely important because we believe in a historical faith, that Jesus was a historical person and died on a cross and was raised from the dead and is coming back in history. So history is very important. And when it says it comes about in these days, he's talking about all these days he's been talking about, the days of the preparations for John to be born, the preparations for Jesus to be born, the mothers praising God, Zechariah's whole experience. All these things are looking forward to the final fulfillment when Jesus would come. So a little note on Augustus here a moment. Octavian Caesar Augustus, he reigned from 27 B.C. to A.D. 14. And he decrees this census because he wants to tax all the inhabitants of his empire. Of course, not the citizens, just the other people. But the whole world here that he's talking about is a typical hyperbole of emperors because they think they run worlds. And so the whole world would be taxed. Well, it's the Roman world. Now, Octavian is the great nephew of Julius Caesar. And he reigned initially in a triumvirate with Lepidus and Mark Antony. And if you know anything about your Roman history, I guess you probably know the story of Lepidus falling from power, Antony and Cleopatra, and then Octavian uh, taking over uh, the empire. And the Senate acknowledges him as Caesar and declares him in 27 BC Augustus, the exalted one. This is the beginnings of what would be known as the emperor cult. That means that you would bow down and worship the emperor, and images of him. I mean, he is the leader of the world. And Augustus Caesar is the one, actually, who would put an end to civil war in the empire and establish what would be known as the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. You see, Augustus Caesar is the savior of the world. But the king of peace, the eternally exalted one, was about to be born and Caesar didn't realize it. He was an unwitting agent of God. And we, the readers, are supposed to understand the irony that Luke is bringing out here. The world is hailing one of their greatest leaders saying, he's the savior of the world. Bow down and worship him. But Luke is saying, Jesus Christ, the eternal son of God, has come. 
He's the true Savior of the world. You think the peace of Rome is something to be excited about? The peace from heaven is what we are to be excited about. And history belongs to God. So this census that's being talked about is just simply noted as the first while Quirinius was governor of Syria, which at this time that district included Judea, and he was actually formally governor from 6 to 9 AD. And Luke actually records the famous census of the time, which was actually held in 6 AD. In Acts 5, he talks about this. But Quirinius was a powerful man, and he exercised authority in the region even earlier, uh, 6 to 4 BC. And, and another translation of governor here from the Greek would be minister. I mean, there are many details that just simply aren't available to us. And the Luke 2 census could be referring to a census he started earlier, uh, the, the preliminary census, uh, all these types of things, a different one that was finished. Uh, but from other information, we know that Jesus was born sometime between 6 and 4 B.C. Uh, now, why not zero? Well, that's a calendar issue that comes up later. Um, but Luke is shown to be an accurate historian, and so maybe someday we'll learn a bit more about this census, and that will be fascinating because it will give us more light on what's going on. So here's the setup between the worldly king and the heavenly king. And then we go and see Joseph and Mary on their travels. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, most probably, they didn't have to go back to their hometowns. You pay your taxes from anywhere. But it was a Jewish custom to do so, to go back to your uh, ancestry. And so many did in Judea at this time. And perhaps in Joseph's case, he also saw this as a new opportunity in his life. And some suggest that Joseph actually had property there and so returned for that reason as well. But Mary went up from, him from, went up from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which is about seven miles south of Jerusalem. Now, again, it's not required that she go with him, it seems, but it's probably the best choice, considering the circumstances. I mean, she's soon to give birth. Um, this, there's a lot of stigma, of course, would be surrounding this pregnancy and birth. And yet there was a destiny she knew she had to fulfill, as Gabriel the angel had announced. And she was engaged or betrothed, um, just married, it means, without consummation, and with child, and Mary could be anywhere at this point from three months pregnant to full term. We don't know for sure. So don't be too enamored with the legend that Mary was experiencing birth pangs on the journey. I mean, there are a lot of Christmas legends out there that raise our sentiments. They're fun, but we want to focus on the scriptures. And so going to Bethlehem, the key here, the point is that he's, because Joseph is of the line of David, that's the central concern of this text, because this child would inherit the throne. He would be David's greater son. Those were the words given to Mary back in chapter 1, verse 31 and following. Gabriel's words. The city of David normally refers to Jerusalem, but David grew up in Bethlehem, and actually many cities claimed such a title. And of course, the prophecy that's on all of our minds as we're reading this is Micah chapter 5, verse 2 and following, but as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when he who, she who is in labor has borne a child. 
Then the remainder of his brethren will return to the sons of Israel, and he will arise and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will remain. Because at that time, he will be great to the ends of the earth, and this one will be our peace. Our passage goes on then to talk about the birth in verse 6, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Again, we read the famous word that I've been pointing out all the time, almost every single section, fulfilled. In your translation, some of it will say fulfilled or the time has come. Luke opened his gospel that way in chapter 1, verse 1. He's repeated this phrase many times because it's not just that he's talking about Mary's time for giving birth is fulfilled. But this point in the history of redemption when the Messiah would be here has been fulfilled and is now upon us. And according to, and contrary actually to some legends out there, most likely Mary's birth was filled with normal pain. So it's not like it was an easy birth just because he's the Messiah. It's filled with all the normal experiences of humanity and its pain and its sorrows and its joys and its excitements. And according to custom, the baby was wrapped tightly in strips of cloth to protect, to keep warm, to comfort, and placed in a feeding trough. This is the obvious place to put a baby. It's a perfect place when you're in a cave-like stable. In fact, it was, un- un- it was not unusual at the time to have farm animals in an adjacent room or on the first floor of a residence. In fact, it's pretty common in many places in the world. They probably weren't as repulsed by the arrangement as we are because, you know, we come from a much more sanitized age in history. Well, this was Mary's firstborn son. Emphasizing here the right to inherit the throne as the firstborn and preparing us for what's coming up next. If you glance ahead to verse 23, when they go to present Jesus, it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. It could be, but it's probably not a reference to Jesus here of being the only begotten of God, meaning and speaking about the Trinity. But Luke will bring this up later on and will be very clear to us as we go through the gospel. And it's not likely a reference to the fact that Mary did have other children and the scriptures tell us that she did, actually. She had, uh, Jesus had four brothers and at least two sisters. So the reason why they are here, though, is because there's no room at the inn. Now, this is more than the idea of a hotel room, but also that they couldn't find any normal lodging at the time, not even with the poor relative who might be living in the area. And all the details that have been speculated on over the centuries on this are pure conjecture. Many are unhelpful and unnecessary. And we don't want to overplay the scanty information, but a few we probably need to debunk in our legends and that swirl around us at Christmas seasons is they're not necessarily poverty-stricken individuals, when you think about Mary and Joseph. Um, They're not that way, most likely. He was a craftsman. Later on, we'll find them in a home. And there's also no mention of a villainous, vicious innkeeper. I know it makes for good children's cartoons, um, but there's no mention of him in this text at all. So we shouldn't think about him either, since he doesn't probably exist. And nor is this necessarily the last town in, place in town for them that evening or necessarily even the, the last place they've stayed or the first place they've stayed. It's not like they're arriving late in the evening and this is the only place left. 
They've probably been staying in many places at this point. But the, but the issue is that this particular night, for whatever reason, which we don't know, these good and godly parents, as we've already been introduced to them, have selected the best option available for them that night, even though it might not have been their first choice. I mean, we don't want to squash the value of holy imaginations, but we want to make sure that we do not miss the main point of the Scripture that's in front of us and not just simply add speculation to increase our sentimentalities or to support our traditions. When you think about it, Luke did not write his gospel account to give us Christmas traditions. That wasn't the purpose in writing the gospel. These verses are a simple presentation showing us a couple things. One is, is that God is sovereign in history. And he overrides those politicians who think they run history. And the second point that Luke is making is he wants us to see the magnitude of the condescension of the Son of God, the glorious Son. I mean, he lived eternally with the Father in open glory in the heavenly places. And here he is now adding to himself a human nature and being born in obscurity and humility. That's all to get our minds thinking about this doesn't make sense. It's incongruous in our minds. But God has sovereignly directed the humble birth of the King of Peace. And this section ends on purpose with the words, there was no room at the inn. It's not just a bare fact that Luke is recording here. It's emphasizing yet again this infinite condescension of this divine royal Messiah. Here it is. We see the Son of the Most High. We've already been introduced to Him in the Gospel of Luke. He's the horn of salvation. He's the sunrise from on high. And here He is lying in a stable in a feeding trough with no one to welcome Him. See, the world had no room. John's Gospel makes that clear. And yet we adore Him, the Lord and Savior of the world, but this humility from the very beginning would characterize Jesus' life and ministry and ultimately his death on a cross. And he would confound his enemies by the way he did his ministry and the way he pointed out how so many people are wise in their own eyes. But you know what else it accomplishes at the same time? And we'll see this as people get saved throughout the Gospel of Luke is that this humility that he models also makes him very desirable by people who know how sinful they are and who are at the bottom of society. Refresh your souls in the joy of the gospel. Here are the simple facts, the simple historic details that are so familiar and so cherished by us, and they help us worship our Savior, Jesus Christ, all the better. Well, after the birth, heaven and earth are rejoicing, and they're still rejoicing, by the way, over the birth of Christ the Lord. And so we read then in verses 8 to 14 this announcement that's given by angels to the shepherds. And then we see in verses 15 to 20 the joyful witness of these shepherds. And so it begins, verses 8 to 14. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy that will be for all the people. 
For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. So this central section is the focus of the passage that we're looking at this morning, especially the end, the angelic gloria, glory to God in the highest. So we start off learning right after the greater son of David gets born, learning that there are some shepherds in the area watching their sheep by night against predators and thieves, and we might say, well, who really cares? But that's the point, of course, and we already know it's exactly the point. We wouldn't expect shepherds to actually be the first witnesses and evangelists of the divine Messiah's birth. But it's the very fact that their lack of social status near the bottom, it humbles the humble, mirrors the humble birth of the Son of God. And it also teaches us that salvation is for all the world, even the least likely. It's not just for the people we think it's for, smart people, religious people, wealthy people, people that are sort of just good people. It's for those who know that they need a savior. And these unknown shepherds would receive the honor of being the first evangelists, and it's so true, just like Mary sang earlier in Luke chapter 151, that God exalts the humble, he has done mighty th deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who are humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. You know, there's another thing to notice here, another reason why the shepherds are chosen, and that's because the holy child would rise to become the true shepherd of Israel. In the Old Testament, especially the image of a shepherd is that of a leader. And so we read about the prophecy of who would be coming to fulfill David's type in Isaiah 40, 11. Like a shepherd, speaking of Jesus, he will tend his flock. In his arms he will gather the lambs and carry them in his bosom. He will gently lead the nursing ewes. In 1 Peter 2:24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross that we may die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed, for you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Well, then suddenly this angel of the Lord appears in the glory of the Lord. Maybe it's Gabriel again. I mean, he's already made two appearances in the storyline so far. And maybe this is his third announcement in the loop. We don't know for sure. But the shepherds are, are struck with terror, just like Zechariah was when Gabriel appeared to him and Mary was. And they are also reassured. And the announcement is that there's good news. There's a gospel. There's great joy for all the people. And of course, the Jewish people are the original intention here, but it's very expansive, as we will see in Luke, that Jesus is for all the peoples of the world. And the gospel of great joy is about that one that was spoken of to Mary back in chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. He's here, like Gabriel announced. If you just glance back to chapter 1, verse 31, and behold, the angel says, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And he will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, 
and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Well, three titles, you notice, are given to Jesus here in verse 11. He's the Savior, he's the Christ, and he's the Lord. By saying that Jesus is our Savior, we're saying that he rescues us from our sins, that he alone is able to actually bear the punishment for our sins in our place because there's nothing we can do to remove sin and the guilt and the shame and its power in our life. By faith in his cross and resurrection, we would receive freedom from sin and eternal life. Jesus is our Savior. And Luke will expand on all three of these titles throughout his gospel. Well, Jesus is also the Christ. That means he's the Messiah, the anointed Davidic Messiah, the one who would fulfill the line of David, and he's brought in the kingdom of God. And as we'll see, when Jesus starts preaching, he says he's here to preach the gospel of the kingdom. And he's soon going to return in glory because he's reigning as king in heaven on high right now. And he's, when he comes back, he's going to complete all the promises that he's made to us as his people. But Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus is the Lord. That is here, the eternal God. The Son of God. This is the first explicit statement in the writings of Luke, and it is certainly not his last, where he talks about our God being triune. Well, these summarize the hope of the infancy narrative that we've been looking at in Luke and studying. They promise a very full gospel in the gospel of Luke to come. I mean, there's so much packed in here. There's so much theology. Luke is not only a historian, but he's also a theologian. And he's giving us all his themes in advance. Now surely now the shepherds would be expecting, well, if this is the announcement of who's born, there's going to be some great glorious sign to go see. But the sign would be one of intense incongruity because of who Jesus is, we know who he is, but then where you would find him. The Son of God as a baby would be wrapped up and lying in a feeding trough. I mean, how odd. How mysteriously paradoxical this would be. And it must have seemed that way to the shepherds. Why would the divine Messiah be there? To enter the world in such a humble way, really, it's not even humble, it's humiliating to be that way. Well, actually, it was a perfect sign devised in God's wisdom. And it reveals and impresses on our minds, again, the reality of the extremity of the condescension of the Son of God. This is like the third time Luke has used this kind of language to make us think, this is a big deal. I mean, you and I think it's pretty cool to be human. Yeah. So, but for the divine eternal son, in all his glory, to take on humanity, it's impossible for us to imagine, let alone understand the, the personal union of these two natures and who he is. Also, think about how he would live among us. I mean, he said he came as one who serves. And that's how he would die for us in obedience to the Father and to purchase our freedom. It's how salvation would come, by the grace and mercy of God. In 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the Apostle Paul writes, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich in heavenly glory, yet for your sake he became poor, that you through his poverty might become rich. Yet, it still bothers us, it should bother us, 
Because we love and adore him for who he is and all the glory and all that we understand from the rest of the scriptures that have been given to us, it just still doesn't seem like a glorious enough entrance. And that's okay. Well, then suddenly there's this whole array of angels appearing, and they're all praising God. The heavens are opened up, if you will, to observe and delight in God's plan finally coming to fruition. I mean, this is the greatest thing they've seen since God created man in his own image. It's the greatest thing they've seen because now he's finally revealed how he's going to bring salvation to humanity. It's finally been revealed and the glory of the Son of God in doing it all is amazing to these angelic beings. And so they sing then the third hymn, this couplet describing what's going on in heaven at the time in the first line and what's going on in earth at the same time. In the highest, glory is being given to God because of the incarnation of the Son of God. On earth, peace, also salvation, you can read, is coming to those who are chosen by God. The phrase is translated many different ways in English because it's very complicated to translate this Greek phrase, but it's translated sometimes as men of his good pleasure. That's a standard way, actually, of referring to God's elect, his chosen ones in the Bible, in the scriptures, Other translations are those upon whom his favor rests. It's not about peace being granted to men and women who please him in themselves. That would be a wrong understanding. It's not about that God brings peace and salvation to those people who wish one another goodwill. We're not saved by the works of the flesh. I mean, people think they are. People tend to think, oh, I'm good enough, and since I'm sort of good, God must be pleased with me, so therefore he gives me salvation. But no, this is for those who know they're sinners. And it's God who takes pleasure in granting salvation to whom he wishes. He favors whom he wills. And bringing them this heavenly peace. And if you've been favored by God for that peace, you know that it's a wonderful blessing. Well, then, there's the joyful witness of the shepherds in verses 15 to 20. And we read, then, when the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went in haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in the manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. Those are the words of the angel. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had seen, heard and seen, as it had been told them. So Luke, as you probably noticed already here, is recording four responses to the angelic Gloria. So this announcement's given. The song is sung. And now there are four responses. There's the response of the shepherds. There's the response of the Bethlehemites. And the response of Mary and the final response of the shepherds. And Luke records all this information for the purpose of inspiring us to embrace all the things all these people are doing. Pay attention to how many verbs are in this passage. It's just packed full of people doing things because of the announcement of Jesus being born. 
And when the angelic host returns to Heppers, the shepherds are discussing excitedly amongst themselves, determining to seek out the sign right then at night, just like Mary did when she heard about Elizabeth's pregnancy. And so the shepherds, with faith and obedience, notice they seek and they find the work of God, which he told them about. They find the baby's mother, Mary. They find the baby's father, Joseph. And finally, they find the holy infant child, the Christ, lying in a manger. And they're so full of joy over finding it that they go start telling everybody about what they've seen and exactly what the angels told them. And this is what they tell them again. Don't be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of a great joy, which shall be for all the people. And today in the city of David, there's been born a Savior for you, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you that you'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. They're telling everybody this. This is what happened to them. And this is what they found. And so then we see the people of Bethlehem, they're all wondering, it says, at the reports of the shepherds. You know, the word wonder is sort of like saying, well, that's interesting. I mean... Could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. We don't know. And so they're wondering at this message of the angel and the confirmation of it. I mean, everyone seems to be amazed and responding enthusiastically with their excitement about it. Something great and spiritual has happened, it seems. But they don't necessarily respond with the same belief as the shepherds do. In fact, this is purposeful by Luke because it prefigures the popularity of Jesus. And yet that not everyone's going to believe. There are going to be many who just wonder. Because they like to hear spiritual stories. Especially if there's signs along with them. Sort of cool coincidences and miracles. I mean, you know it. We live amongst the same kind of people. They want to just tell spiritual stories and be spiritually encouraged. But as Jesus opens his ministry, as we'll read in Luke chapter 4, verse 22... This is his reception he receives. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words that were falling from his lips. But they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? So we have the response of the people of Bethlehem. Maybe some were believers, some were skeptics, but just wondering. Then Mary, we see, treasures and ponders all these things in her heart. I mean, she remembers so much the message Gabriel gave to her, the visitation of the Spirit, Elizabeth's blessing, and now she adds these events and wonders at the greatness of their meaning and reflects it upon it all, as it says, in quiet joy, not fully understanding it all, but meditating on what it all might mean someday. And then we have the response of the shepherds again. So they leave, they go back to their fields, believing. The first to have witnessed the Christ child and witnessed of him to others. And as they go, it says, they praise God, they glorify God for all they had heard and seen. And this is the proper response to the angelic message and the divine events in our text. Heaven and earth rejoiced and are still rejoicing over Christ the Lord. That's talking about all the angels in heaven. All the redeemed that are there are rejoicing before God in heavenly glory. And we too are supposed to rejoice and worship. We're supposed to do the things that we see happening here. We're to go and see and believe and make known and wonder in belief and treasure and ponder and glorify and praise God for all that he has shown to us. 
Refresh our souls in the joy of the gospel. That's why Luke gives us this whole story in such significant historic detail to lead us to worship our Savior Jesus Christ all the better. And I do hope that you found the retelling of what's come to be known as the Christmas story to be so much more than a Christmas story. And it is truly satisfying to you as a believer in Jesus. Luke wants our faith to be deepened by adding knowledge to it. He wants it to be strengthened by adding our emotions to it, our affections to it, and as a result of reading what he wrote, meditating upon it, hearing it preached. This was the portion of Scripture he was privileged to write by the work of the Holy Spirit. And he wants to give us even more consideration for us to go home with a couple things today, two points that we brought up. God has sovereignly directed the humble birth of the true King of Peace. There's a lot to think about there. And that heaven and earth rejoiced and are still rejoicing over Christ the Lord. So what are we supposed to do with this passage and how does it aid our worship? That's a good question we should ask of every passage that we read in Scripture, actually. And you know, often it begins, so here's a tip on Bible study, it often begins with just observing things. Just observing what you read. And then it'll help you worship our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there could be a lot more or a lot less, but this is one of the things that I'll often do reading a passage of Scripture. So I have 12 observations. Don't try to write them down. You won't get it. Besides, I don't care what you think about my observations. You need to go make your own. So as I think about this passage, there are things that can help us worship the Lord if we meditate upon the historical circumstances on a larger scale that God has decreed and directed it all. Second, divine timing of bringing our salvation. When it was the perfect time, he determined that he would get the most glory for himself and that it would be the best time to bring salvation to the world, even to me, even to you. Third, the preparation behind the scenes, not just the history up here, but history down here in this event and all the things that took place in the house of Zechariah and the things that took place in the house of Joseph and all these details that had to be put together. All the prophecies, number four, are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So many of them have already been pointed out by Luke. There are so many now that we know are fulfilled, and there's so many more to come. You can use that to praise God from this passage. Specific parallels with David, especially. They're drawn out. The greater son of David, that's a very strong picture of hope. That can help us praise God more. The humble birth of the son, his divine condescension, a mystery so deep that we're never going to fully understand it, ever fully understand that one. The angelic announcement to the gospel for the whole world, because we know we're recipients of that. As history unfolds and God directs history, the gospel got to us. And we know that it's our role as a church to continue spreading the gospel. That's something to praise God for. We can also praise God for the content of the angelic message, those three titles. Jesus is Savior, Christ, and Lord. That will take you a lot of time to praise God for all those things. Nine, the unusual sign that God devised in his own wisdom to communicate what he wanted to communicate by having Jesus born and placed in a stable. We can praise God with the song of the angelic host about the glory of God in all of this because it's really all about God. Eleventh, 
our reception of divine favor. If God has blessed you with salvation, the peace it brings to our lives, and for all eternity that's going to be there, that's something to be praising God for. Twelfth, the responses of all these people in our story, what the shepherds did, what the Bethlehemites did, what Mary did, they teach us how to respond to the history in Luke chapter 2. So how many more can you find? That's your assignment for the week. Well, at this point in our service, most appropriately so, we're going to be celebrating the Lord's Supper together. And so if those who are going to be assisting me would please come forward and meet me at the table.